Part 1 of Europe in the Middle of the 17th Century by Martin Philipson from The History of All Nations from Earliest Times Volume 13 The Age of Louis XIV translated under the supervision of John Henry Wright This is a LibriVox recording all LibriVox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit librivox.org read by Piotr Nater. To its great loss, Germany had for thirty years been the centre of the political and military activity of Europe. Seldom has a people been stricken with such a calamity as were the Germans, through the ruinous war for religion. That the country not only survived, but gradually elevated itself from its wretched state, is a proof of its indestructible vitality and essential soundness. The numerical strength of the armies was not such as utterly to ruin, even by their long-continued presence, a country so rich as the Germany of the beginning of the 17th century. The actual armies did not average in number more than 30,000 to 40,000 men, but camp followers hung about the combatants, and they too had to be fed. At the end of the war, the united imperial Bavarian army comprised 40,000 soldiers who drew rations, and 140,000 camp followers who got nothing. All these had to live at the cost of the peaceful, industrious population. As the pay was much higher then than it is now in the German armies, it was invariably in arrears, and the soldiers had to resort to plundering to maintain themselves. When they had once entered on the path of violence, there was no means of checking them in their wild career. In their depredations they halted at nothing, rank sex place were not sacred to them violence was done to churches altars and even to graves robbery burning torture and murder were perpetrated from sheer delight therein on friend and foe alike from all over germany from pomerania to swabia from east friesland to austria arose with terrible uniformity the same wail of despair imperialists leaguists swedes hessians bavarians alike fell upon the peaceful homesteads took all that was of worth to them destroyed and devastated the rest wantonly slaughtered the cattle wasted the fields and orchards tortured the inhabitants to extort from them a disclosure of their hidden valuables outraged women and dragged the most beautiful away with them and sold them like cattle on their departure they not seldom set fire to the villages and towns even the forests were burned down and the fishponds drained out of mere wantonness when a place defended itself all the inhabitants were ruthlessly murdered except the few rich from whom they sought to secure ransoms by the most fiendish tortures of all kinds it was a favourite amusement of these monsters to impale helpless infants dash them against walls or roast them in stoves in short, the soldier's motto was, whoever owns anything is our foe. Nor were the leaders more forbearing than their men. Count Königsmark, once a poor German page, carried off enough to Sweden to leave his family a yearly income of 130,000 thalers. Footnote. The thaler was a silver coin having an intrinsic value of 72 cents, but it must be remembered that the purchasing power of money was three times as great at the period of the Thirty Years' War as at present. End of footnote. 
To these devastations by the soldiery and the heavy taxes imposed for the maintenance of the troops, there were added the exorbitant war contributions levied by the generals from hostile towns and districts. In one small section of Hanover, Tilly, within three years, exacted two million thalers. In one single year, the little town of Goslar had to contribute 544,000 thalers. Brandenburg was laid under contribution by Wallenstein and Mantecuccioli to the amount of 20 million thalers, and so on through a long list. The distress was universal. Business and exchange of every kind were further harmed by the debasement of the coinage, which was practiced by all the German princes, especially in the years 1621 to 1623, Brunswick having set the example. In place of standard metal, the coins were composed of copper or simply of sheet iron, lightly silvered over. No one would accept them at their normal value, and the uncertainty and confusion became so great that dealers and innkeepers took down their signs. So-called money was in abundance, but no one could get anything like its face value for it. A good thaler sold for eight, fifteen, and at last twenty thalers of the debased coinage. A bushel of corn brought forty thalers of such money, a pitcher of wine one hundred and thirty. At last the taxes were paid in the debased money, and the gain slipped through the fingers of the princes. Then they remedied matters by calling in the new coinage at its real worth, and issuing coins of full value. But they had defrauded their poor subjects to the extent of the difference in value between the debased and the genuine money, and had done irretrievable injury to business. All industries were at standstill, even the busy hands of the husbandmen was addressed. Whole villages died out, multitudes concealed themselves in forests, caves, and ravines. Hunger gnawed the vitals of the people, who in their anguish ate human flesh, and even broke into graves, ascended the gallows, and rubbed the wheel to prey on the corpses there. Men fought over horse-flesh, and slew one another. More terrible still, men slaughtered human beings, especially defenseless children, that they might devour them. These horrors are not fables, but facts reported by eyewitnesses hundreds of times. In consequence of famine and unwholesome food, typhus fever and other contagious diseases broke out and carried off what the sword had spared. During the siege of Augsburg by the imperialists in 1634, 60,000 citizens and country people who had taken refuge within the walls died. In Munich alone, then a town of only moderate size, 15,000 people perished within a year. The fever penetrated the remotest districts and most secluded mountain valleys. On all roads were to be seen pest chapels, erected to deliver the land from the terrible scourge. It was at this time that the natives of Oberammergau in Upper Bavaria, with the same object, instituted the Passion Play. No wonder that the result was an enormous decrease in the population in all parts of Germany, the effects of which continue to this day. It has been estimated that the population of the empire in 1648 was only a third of what it was in 1618. In Brandenburg, by 1630, many cities were so nearly desolate that half of the houses were uninhabited, and the severest devastations were yet to come. Berlin, which suffered comparatively little from the war, numbered at its close not more than 300 burghers. In Saxony, the wolves multiplied to such an extent that they entered the villages 
and even the smaller towns in bands. In Dresden, the entire suburbs were torn down or burned. The city itself contained only the 15th part of its former population. In Thuringia, whole districts lay in ashes. The younger men had been drafted off to the war, in which most of them had perished, while the older people had either fled or succumbed to pestilence and the hardships of war. In the county of Henneberg, for example, the population had sunk from 61,000 to 16,000, and even at the present day many towns have not recovered the population which they had in 1618. In Nassau, the villages dwindled away to a few houses, and were often entirely deserted. In Wiesbaden, the marketplace and many streets were overgrown with thorns and brush, so that hares and partridges bred among them. Other streets had disappeared entirely, and become merged in the forest. In Franconia, the depopulation was so great that every man was allowed to take two wives, and no man under sixty could enter a monastery. In Württemberg, 312 clergymen died in one year, and at Christmas 1635, over 100 churches were without priests. Many other cases could be cited to illustrate the universal desolation at the end of Thirty Years' War. A contemporaneous work, Extidium Germaniae, depicts the condition of the country as follows, quote, One may travel forty miles, without seeing man or beast, except that in a village here and there you find an old man and a child, or two old women. In all the villages the houses are filled with the stench of carcasses, Men, wife, children, servants, horses, swine, cows, and oxen lying intermingled, slain by pest and hunger, and not at by wolves, dogs, and carrion crows, because there is no one left to bury them. How had the German cities, formerly the main seats of German culture, degenerated? Though since the time of the Reformation they had lost much of their earlier political importance through the continually increasing power of the territorial princes, they had remained comfortable and industrious, and at the beginning of the war were the seats of a pleasant social life. Their edifices rose stately and strong within their tower-crowned walls, their streets were well paved, and their water supply and drainage carefully provided for. They were still, in 1618, the guardians of German civilization. But the cities were both morally and materially injured by the debasement of the coinage, even at the beginning of the war. Then the armies began to roll past them, putting a stop to business and industry. Next, these demanded admission within the walls, and quarters, maintenance and contributions, the soldiers perpetrating all possible excesses. Finally came the storming and capture of numerous cities, which all but annihilated them for a time. Pestilence and hunger did their fatal work. Nor did the free imperial cities fare better than the provincial towns. The Hanseatic League also came to an end, King Christian IV annulling its last privileges in Denmark and Norway. In 1628 it held its last diet, only to announce the breaking up of the ancient union with the humiliating declaration that Quote, the northern kings are the rulers appointed by God over the seas washing the German coast. End quote. Three cities, Hamburg, Bremen, and Lübeck, which still continued the name of the Hansa, maintained a carrying trade on a small scale, but even of this the lion's share fell to the foreigners, the traffic being chiefly carried on in English and Dutch ships. 
Instead of exporting wares, the ships left the harbours of Germany in ballast, and each year fifty or sixty millions of thalers went in this way over the sea, never to be seen again. Individual princes, after the restoration of peace, sought to better the economical condition of their lands, but they did this in accordance with the false views of the mercantile system then prevailing, that is, with one-sided patronage and artificial promotion of the weaker industries to the prejudice of that great branch, which was then by far the most natural and the most profitable for Germany, namely agriculture. The national welfare was checked by unwise restrictions on intercourse and traffic in the interior. Navigation on the rivers was burdened by endless tolls, and was thus rendered impossible for remote distances. Every one of the innumerable little German principalities was hemmed in by almost prohibitive import and export duties. These exactions and impediments to interstate commerce worked all the more harmfully because the empire, split up into so many petty principalities, could not, as against the foreigner, carry out a united commercial policy, nor indeed afford its inhabitants any effective protection against foreign corporations and private merchants. The infinite variety of money, too, and the want of a strict statutory supervision of the various mints threw further obstacles in the way. The consequence was that foreign products had everywhere the advantage over the native. The state of the rural districts was even worse than that of the cities. In spite of all restrictions and obligations, the peasants, before the outbreak of the war, were, especially in West and South Germany, in a condition of material prosperity and comfort. Their houses, though simple in construction, were well provided with furniture and conveniences. They possessed many cattle, and horse-breeding was carried on, on a more extensive scale than at present. The sheep yielded a fine, universally prized wool, which, when converted into cloths, formed a favorite article of export. The culture of the vine, too, was then common in many districts where it is no longer followed. But after 1618 all this changed. The peasant was first defrauded by the debasement of the currency, then came the burdensome taxes for war purposes, and finally the armies, as previously described, devastated and desolated everywhere. How, after the return of peace, were the wretched conditions to be even mitigated? The peasants' dwellings were in ruins their cattle slaughtered or driven off, their orchards cut down, their furniture destroyed, their money gone. Many discharged soldiers did indeed again lay hold of the axe and plough, but they were often possessed by the wild, unruly spirit engendered by war, and could not easily reconcile themselves to humdrum everyday village life. With the purpose of taming these turbulent elements, the greater landowners drew the bonds of vassalage even tighter, and the social relations of the peasants became more and more oppressive. The peasant vegetated, pent in like his cattle, kept in awe by his parson through the dread of hellfire, regularly shorn by his landlord and sovereign, or led off to the battlefield in his own or a foreign country. Nor did the landowners lie on beds of roses. They lived on their impoverished and wasted possessions, for the most part crushed down by debts and lawsuits. Loans by which to repair the ravages of war were difficult to obtain, and then only at exorbitant interest. Many nobles had to leave home and court, and attach themselves as satellites to their more fortunate brethren. 
terrible as was germany's material suffering from this cruel war the intellectual and moral degeneracy was still worse pecuniary losses would have been made good with time had the people's spiritual nature been left uncorrupted but this was not so and even at the present day the wounds that the thirty years war inflicted on german character are scarcely healed a turbulent gross lawless temper averse to work of any kind took possession of all classes in the empire the life of a highwayman or a vagrant beggar was more congenial to many than the hard constraints of honest labor in bavaria and many other places gypsies swindlers and vagabonds of all sorts swarmed in bands over the country if the elector determined to go on a pilgrimage he had first for his own safety to send out scouring parties to clear the roads since no one was sure of the future the rule was to make the most of the present how could noble conceptions refinement of manners regard for what is sacred and a taste for higher enjoyments develop in a period of such vicissitude and barbarism nor did the wild manner of living disappear immediately after sixteen forty eight the misery of the times says one instead of bettering the people made them worse profligacy impunity and kindred vices became daily more rampant and all efforts to check them were in vain this is most clearly proved by the frequent and repeated ordinances against the desecration of sunday and saints days dancing drunken carousels night brawls and clamour cursing fornication and adultery excesses at marriages and feasts etc how universally did superstition and fanaticism gain the upper hand while young and old showed the greatest indifference to religion such was the condition of germany at the close of the thirty years war the prevalent degeneracy was aggravated by the fact that the clergy suffered more than almost any other class through the war on the ministers of an alien faith the soldiers fell with a special fury and care for the souls of the sick carried off numbers during the pestilence the devastation of many universities combined with the poverty of most congregations checked the supply of new candidates education too suffered scarcely less severely how wretched the condition of the teachers was is shown by ordinances issued in more places than one interdicting the clergy from employing schoolmasters too often in their domestic service as in sawing wood and threshing wheat a seemingly paradoxical phenomenon of the times was boundless extravagance in dress and ornaments and glutinous excess in eating and drinking innumerable sumptuary laws show the prevalence of the evil though they appear to have been without effect in leipzig the maid-servants were summoned before the city council for wearing trains and laces forbidden to people of their class and the gigos were torn from them but such attempts to prevent extravagance were unsuccessful people thought it better to squander what they possessed in luxury and riotous living than to let it fall into the hands of those who spared nothing even the priesthood shared this feeling and promoted it by encouraging lavish display on high festivals the higher classes set an example of prodigality and frivolity which found ready imitation among those beneath them the workmen's ancient pride in honest work vanished the decadence of german manufactures which had been wrongly ascribed to the modern system of economical freedom took its origin in the thirty years war the coarse scepticism and the struggle after merely material interests 
characteristic of the epoch, were perfectly compatible with the densest superstition. The terrors amid which everyone lived beclouded the moral nature of even the best disposed and delivered them over to the gloomy frenzy of delusion. Soldiers believed that they could fortify themselves by charms against the enemy's weapons. A whole literature gathered round this black art, which was, however, recognized as coming from the devil, and as ultimately fatal to those who practiced it. In no other age and country did the belief in witchcraft prevail so generally as in Germany at this time, as if the sword, fire, famine, and pestilence had not claimed victims enough, innumerable persons, especially women, fell victims to the popular delusion about witchcraft. The witch-commissioners gained renown in proportion to the number of unfortunates whom they caused to be seized and burned. In every village a committee was appointed to bring new delinquents to trial. In three years, from 1627 to 1629, the Bishop of Würzburg caused 900 witches to be executed. Nor are we to believe that all these victims were convicted through confessions forced from them by torture. Probably the darkest feature in the whole matter was that many regarded themselves as actually guilty. The horrors of the time and the universal belief in this direful superstition produced hallucinations that convinced many women, young as well as old, that they really had dealings with the evil one and had attended the witch's sabbath. Even the Swedes, who came to Germany untainted by this superstition, became infected by the delusion and returned to kindle the fires of torture in their own land. It was only natural that the protracted civil war should destroy the last relics of national feeling still lingering in the hearts of the German people. These men, who, with the help of foreigners, had for thirty years been slaughtering one another, no longer had a common fatherland. Was it possible for the Protestants to honor, as their emperor and liege lord, that puppet of the Jesuits in Vienna, who was the cause of so much of their sufferings? Even the Catholics saw that these Habsburgs cared only for the power of their house, and not at all for the welfare or greatness of Germany. The feeling of national unity and loyalty for a national emperor was dead. Catholicism was popular, at most only in Bavaria and some of the ecclesiastical principalities. On the other hand, the meanness, cowardice, and selfishness of the Protestant princes took from their fellow Protestants all confidence in them or pride in their cause. Ultimately, the religious character of the war was thrust into the background, and the contest became entirely one of political selfishness. How could any feeling of nationality or even of local patriotism arise? Little could Germany do to withstand the influence of the foreign soldiers and foreign officers with their male and female hangers-on, who during the whole course of the war overflowed the land. The German does not have that hard, reserved nature which enables other nationalities to resist the effects of the introduction of foreign elements. Even in the Middle Ages, the German nation had opened itself especially to French influences. How much more easy for such to find admission now that all national life, all community of feeling, all pride in country were dead among the Germans. The manner of the foreigners was so confident and imposing, and they appeared so much gayer, richer, and happier, that the poor Germans readily believed that everything was better which came from them, and eagerly imitated them in their manners, speech, and fashions. 
The special assumption of French modes dates from 1626. Men then began to make themselves ridiculous by imitating the giant perukes of the French court. The beard that the beau up to this time had cultivated and cared for with extraordinary anxiety was now shaved off. The monster peruke hung like a cloud over the beardless face. In like manner, the war mantle gave way to the overcoat, while the jerkin gradually shrank up into the vest. Naturally, the modifications in the female attire were not behind those in the male, the most noticeable being the very low cut of the dresses so as to expose the neck and bust. Unfortunately, this spirit of mimicry prevailed not only in regards to the foreigner, but also in the relations between the different ranks. Everyone cringed before his superiors, to lord it more arrogantly over his inferiors. The princes themselves saw in their subjects only flocks to be shorn to the uttermost. As if in contempt of the reputation of being good housefathers, so much coveted by their ancestors, they gave themselves up to revels and extravagances of all kinds. At the same time they endeavoured to appear as mighty monarchs, surrounded themselves with armies, made up perhaps only of a few parade soldiers, with regular courts composed of a host of ministers, privy councillors, and diplomats. For the welfare of his subjects, for a rational financial and civil administration, or for watchfulness over public or private morality, the prince now cared nothing. The nobility flocked to his court, and crowded in devotion around the ruler, that they might share in his brilliant and delightful existence, and be remembered with some portion of the spoil torn from the hapless subjects. Counting the collateral lines of the great princely houses, there were then in Germany at least five hundred to six hundred courtly households, and one thousand five hundred castles, where were found at least six thousand court offices and charges. Every one of them fell to the nobles. With smiles of devotion, these unworthy flatterers bore the humours and insults of the despot and his favourites of either sex, or deliberately placed their wives and daughters as mistresses in his arms. Such men did not trouble themselves about their peasants. The collector of rent and the overseer of labour were all that these saw to remind them of their lord. If the latter chanced to return to his estate, his delight was to pose there as a little sovereign, to surround himself with stringent ceremonials, and to squander his means in splendid buildings and in personal indulgence. The burgher stood in silent awe, not only before the prince, but before his functionaries and officers. He knew no higher ambition than to be admitted into the latter class, and possibly to be dignified with a title. The mania for ennoblement dates entirely from this period. The imperial court took advantage of it to fill its empty coffers by the sale of titles at a fixed tariff. As early as 1654 the Diet complained of this vicious practice. No wonder that all interest in municipal or communal affairs died out, and that maladministration prevailed. The wretched conditions of Germany were not without recognition at the time. This found expression in numberless pamphlets, which, as well as newspapers, were eagerly read. From the beginning of the 17th century, newspapers had regularly increased in number in all parts of Germany and Austria. What they lacked in spirit, 
and interest was abundantly supplied by the pamphlets which exposed and criticised abuses and grievances boldly and incisively but unfortunately did not have any remedies to propose however even during the dreary times of the war and in the following years efforts at reform were not entirely lacking there were a few able conscientious princes such as frederick william of brandenburg charles louis of the palatinate and eberhard of württemberg and some honest officials who thought more of the welfare of the people than of their own personal interests or the smile of the ruler minister or favourite many of the clergy too catholic as well as protestant by their piety and devoted self-sacrifice made up in some measure for the evils that their mutual hatred had brought on the land no department suffered more through the disorders of the war than that of learning professors and students vanished before the clash of arms or became soldiers helmstadt in sixteen twenty four numbered four hundred students two years later its lecture rooms were empty and its professors with one solitary exception had fled in heidelberg in sixteen twenty six there were but two students in jena the number of newcomers was reduced to two-thirds the universal poverty deprived the university teachers of their bread many betook themselves to foreign lands others perished in penury even among the youths who continued to study an incredible grossness and brutality prevailed the result of intercourse with the soldiery the worst scholastic outrage was the penalism that is the systematic abuse of the newcomers penals by the older students scoristen these inhuman practices finally became so outrageous that the diet felt compelled to intervene and enact severe penalties the teaching itself was lifeless and pedantic encumbered by the bonds of rigid orthodoxy and servile adherence to precedent the professors were the first to introduce among their students the unworthy distinction of nobles and civilians in the domains of secondary education john amos comenius fifteen ninety two to sixteen seventy a protestant preacher and teacher of moravia made an earnest attempt at reform driven from his native land by the counter-reformation he led a wandering life in germany england sweden hungary and holland his educational writings gained him great fame but little gold unweariedly he preached a natural and god-fearing system of education as the best cure for the moral disease of the time up to this time and later also eloquence had formed the main subject of study his foundation principle was that a knowledge of things should precede the study of works therefore an acquaintance with actual objects as those of nature science and art should precede the study of dialectics and rhetoric so that these might not be a mere word-play without substance and meaning it is to be regretted that the french fashion of the times and the incapacity of the teachers suffered the seed sown by comenius to die without bearing fruit nor was the german love for investigation and practical invention entirely quenched by the thirty years war in sixteen fifty otto van gericke invented the air-pump and four years later he demonstrated its efficiency before the diet of ratisbon by the experiment of the magdeburg hemispheres so called from gericke being mayor of magdeburg besides this he constructed the first manometer and electrical machine 
even the princes occupied themselves much with such experiments, often, however, not so much from an interest in science as from their bent toward alchemy and similar cabalistic studies. But on the whole, Germany could not keep pace with Italy, France, the United Provinces, and England in their extraordinary advances in the sciences. German students in these branches had to seek instruction in foreign universities or from the writings of foreigners. Intellectual efforts found there neither the sympathy of large classes of the community, as in England, Italy, and Holland, nor the steadfast support of a powerful sovereign, as in France. Practical inventions were not encouraged and fostered by a wealthy and enterprising commercial class, so that the main incentive to making them was wanting. Nor were the consequences of the protracted war less disastrous to the religious life. The scant germs of improvement, which had shown themselves toward the end of the period immediately preceding it, were choked. In the Protestant lands nothing prevailed but a lifeless adherence to the latter, in the Catholic, the Jesuits, with their rigid formalism and tyranny over the intellect, had all power in their hands, while the learned, as we have seen, were either pedants or sought stimulation in foreign lands. With delight men gave themselves up to the seductive charm of France, particularly in the Protestant territories, which were more closely associated with their western neighbours. The German Calvinists maintained a lively intercourse with their French brethren, who, being discountenanced and sometimes even persecuted at home, settled in considerable numbers in the congenial German lands. The Catholic districts, on the other hand, found themselves once more in connection with Italy and Spain, and accepted their fashions, customs, and speech. French, Italian, and Spanish expressions made their way into the German language in such profusion that it was soon saturated with Latin elements. The result was that it lost much of its native character, and especially in the eagerly read newspapers became a confused medley of tongues. In vain did writers of the better sort bewail the evil, and satirists deride it. Even special societies were instituted for the maintenance of the purity of the language, but the intellectual poverty and want of literary endowments on the part of most of the members made it impossible for them to exercise any effective influence. That poetry kept itself pure from this confusion of tongues and other affectations was due chiefly to the fact that the national new high German poetry had its origin at this time under the auspices of so clear-sighted and patriotic a man as Martin Opitz. This poet, born in 1597 at Bunzlau in Silesia, was a man who had educated himself not only by a thorough study of the classics in the schools and universities, but also by intercourse with highly gifted associates and a long sojourn in the free Netherlands. A journey to Paris also contributed to liberalize his mind and polish his taste. He early became famous and was crowned as poet laureate by Emperor Ferdinand II. Chosen to be secretary and court historiographer by the King of Poland, he died in 1639 of the plague. With justice he bears the name of Father of New High German Poetry. His earlier poems show a freshness and an originality of genius, which he later sacrificed too much to smoothness of form and a slavish imitation of foreign models. His didactic poems we admire chiefly for their occasional descriptions of nature and the power of observation they show.
His tragedies, pastoral plays, and operas are long since forgotten, but they had a stimulating effect on his own and the immediately succeeding age. It is noteworthy that, at the same time with Opitz, an eminent Catholic author, Frederick von Spee, in the introduction to his book of songs, the Trutznachtigall, was contending for the essential principles of Opitz, especially for the avoidance of every foreign or even affected expression. More than Opitz, he shunned all leaning toward foreigners, and his songs, glowing with a fervid but mystical piety, show more true feeling and strike a more popular note than those of his cooler and more restrained contemporary. Himself a noble and lovable Jesuit father, he exhibits the beautiful and attractive side of the life of the Catholic orders. He was the first in Europe to protest in his book, Cautio Criminalis, 1631, against the atrocious persecution of witches, and he met with success. In accordance with the religious disposition of the time, the Protestant hymnology made itself rather more widely acceptable than the Catholic, and there is a most interesting development in that direction. John Herman, with his beautiful hymns, was a great comforter of poor and afflicted people. More profound, and yet more popular than Herman, was Paul Gerhardt. Never were the relations of the individual to his creator more fervently and more effectively depicted than in his sacred songs, several of which have become German classics. Secular poetry found a worthy representative in the greatest poet of the time, Paul Fleming. Born in 1609, in a parsonage among the mountains which separate Saxony from Bohemia, Fleming attained in his youth a position in the diplomatic service of the Duke of Schleswig-Holstein, and took part in an embassy to Moscow. He then studied medicine in Leipzig, and settled as a physician in Hamburg, where he died in 1640. Fleming came into personal contact with Opitz, and all his life regarded him as his master, but surpassed him in genuine feeling. How sincere and warm an interest he took in the sad faith of his countrymen, and how deeply he deplored their degeneracy, are shown in his lamentation over the, quote-unquote, changing and timidity of the present Germans. How keenly he felt for their literary fame in his poem Against the Contaminers of German Poetry. If Fleming was the greatest German poetical genius of his time, Andreas Griffius was the most versatile. Like Opitz, he was a Silesian, born in 1616, and, like him, made several tours abroad. Alternately, a teacher and an executive officer of the respectable class, he died in his native city in 1664. A sad personal life and the afflictions of his fatherland have given a melancholy character to most of Griffius's creations. In contrast with Opitz, Griffius's lyrical pieces express his feelings with great truth and directness, but often with rudeness and in violation of the rules of poetical expression. His comedies are based on actual conditions and express the views of the people, but are often characterized by a rude comic power and unvarnished naturalness. Till Lessing, nothing so good as Griffius's comedies, appeared in this branch of literature. The popular bent that shows itself in Griffius's comedies is obvious also in the satirists. The Silesian, Frederick von Logau, is without doubt the leading epigrammatic poet of Germany. Power and pungency of expression, coupled with a light, airy grace, are finely and wittily united in him. 
as in the case of many patriotic writers of the period a frequent subject for his scorn is the predominance of foreign especially of french influence though poetry thanks to the efforts of opitz and spee had well maintained itself prose had fallen to such a low level as to threaten the very existence of the language but two prose authors kept it alive by avoiding the general bubble-like corruption mosherosh and grimelshausen mosherosh an able alsatian administrative officer and statesman following the example of the spanish quevedo lashed the errors and vices of his time in his wonderful and true visions of philander of zitewald his wit scathing as it is always echoes the sorrows of his soul his works were unfortunately too little adapted for the general public to become the common property of the whole nation and this was also the case with the popular romances of christopher von grimelshausen especially his renowned simplicissimus the truest most comprehensive and at the same time the most captivating picture of contemporaneous conditions existing in german literature to this day they are read with the same interest with which they were read two centuries ago and probably with much more instruction we do not hesitate to pronounce the adventuresome simplicissimus the greatest and most enduring production of the german intellect in the seventeenth century art during the period of storm and stress perished utterly every condition essential to its existence was lacking security wealth national aspirations and common traditions and this at a period when in the netherlands painting had developed on so magnificent a scale and so distinctively that brabant and holland almost took their place by the side of italy the brabant school recognized as its founder and greatest master peter paul rubens this illustrious and many-sided genius had freed himself from the fetters of the mannerists that were predominant at home by a personal study of the great italian artists of the fifteenth century and especially of the venetians the venetian gorgeousness of colouring and skill in drawing are employed by him to express exuberant strength and joy of life delicate natures may be repelled by an occasional obtrusive sensuousness but his matchless massing of figures and his masterly drawing are overpowering his works are the most beautiful embodiment of the nature of the low countries with all its excellencies as well as its defects ecclesiastical and profane history animals and portraits children and landscapes all formed subjects for his pencil and brush rubens's greatest disciple antony van dyck was of an entirely different nature he had nothing of the master's superabundance of power nor of his glowing genius but was refined sensitive and without great inward force or self-reliance at first he was a close imitator of rubens then on his visit to italy the venetian masters had such an influence upon him that his productions are scarcely to be distinguished from theirs finally as court painter to charles i of england he exhibits in his portraits of the aristocratic court circle wonderful delicacy of conception touch and color in descriptive pictures he shows a preference for subjects from the new testament which he treated with great feeling no one among the great brabant painters gives less expression to the sturdy character of the low countries than this delineator of the english nobility 
to the brilliancy and richness of colouring and the aristocratic joy in pomp and splendour of the brabant school the masters of homely republican holland were strangers but in common with it they had a keen feeling for what is real they identified themselves affectionately with nature they possessed a faculty for vigorous execution and accurate study of details in these protestant lands which broke with church traditions art began with simple portraiture and landscapes in these two branches van der helst and especially frank hals distinguished themselves by likenesses characterized by breadth and boldness of touch franz snyders with power and talent depicts hunting and battle scenes john van hoyen founded in a simple and pleasing way the landscape school where the favorite scenes are the wide-spreading well-watered plains of his fatherland in these subjects he was followed by his scholars and then came the master rembrandt van rijn sixteen o seven to sixteen sixty nine who combined in himself all the tendencies of his predecessors and carried them higher and farther rembrandt began by slavishly copying his models without advancing from them to nobler and more beautiful forms but his genius soon asserted itself and while he always took nature as his teacher he strove to idealize her and to bring out the living principle concealed in her wonderful are his light effects sometimes clear and dazzling sometimes in soft chiaroscuro the great painter knew how to inspire even the most trifling objects with life like rubens he was many-sided in the subjects of his art but he had no taste for mythology and treated it only from a coarse comic point of view rembrandt belonged to that class of geniuses who are so supremely original that they leave no disciples but the dutch school continued to develop independently particularly in landscape painting in this the tone was given by jacob ruisdale sixteen twenty five to sixteen eighty two an artist of the first rank nature worked on his spirit with a deep and often passionate effect and yet his creations show a subtle knowledge of the laws of perspective and correct and delicate drawing a spirit of melancholy seems to pervade the unique creations of this great painter-poet who writes elegies upon canvas a pure creation of the netherlands is the modern school of genre painting which has never been equalled either in freshness and originality of conception or in delicacy of execution the founder of this school was peter breuchel who lived at the end of the sixteenth century in the hands of the younger breuchel and the elder david ten years it threatened to take a fantastic and extravagant turn often verging on the absurd the younger david ten years sixteen ten to sixteen ninety restored it to its proper domain he is indeed the true creator of the low-life genre painting of the dutch school he elevates the most vulgar subjects by his fine sense of humour his masterly colouring and dexterous light effects and infuses a spirit of poetry into the most ordinary events of everyday life herard terburg sixteen o eight to sixteen eighty one was the gifted painter of the life of the higher classes whom he shows in older splendour and dignity the stately richly bedecked gentlemen and the dames rustling in wide silken robes and flushing with costly jewellery terburg the first of this school was also the best next to him ranks the somewhat younger herard dau 
and the two were the predecessors of a long series of workers in the same field. What a wonderful race was this little people of the Netherlands, the same generation that produced numerous painters of the first and second rank, brought Dutch literature to its highest stage of perfection, a stage never again to be reached. Amsterdam was at this time the literary centre, where Hoft, Vondel, and Huygens worked together. Peter Hoft, 1581-1647, a scion of an illustrious patrician family, had cultivated his taste by many long foreign tours. His object was to combine the charm of Italian expression with the northern richness of thought. Thus he was the father of Dutch prose and poetry. It must, however, be acknowledged that in the latter field he showed less originality than he did as historian of his country. Joost van den Vondel, 1587-1679, justly enjoys the fame of being the first lyric poet of Holland, while as a dramatist he became a mere imitator of French models. Finally, Constantin Huygens, father of the renewed physicist, distinguished himself as an historian, but his poems have sunk into oblivion. More popular was Jakob Katz, 1577-1660, a Zeelander who plays an important part in the public affairs of the United Netherlands. His writings, spoken of as the Book of Father Katz, held their place, along with the Bible, for centuries in the Dutch and Flemish homes. Holland's renown for classical philology was maintained by such men as Hensius, Hugo Grotius, Rutgers, and Vossius. This country was, indeed, at that time, regarded as the true fatherland of learning. Mercius founded the study of Greek antiquities, Erpenius of Gorkum, and Holius raised the study of Arabic to the rank of science. On the original and suggestive discoveries of Kepler in regard to the eye, the Dutch based others of a practical nature. Jens Lippershey, a spectacle-maker of Middelburg, devised the telescope in 1608. Cornelius van Drebel, the microscope. About 1620, Willebrord Snell discovered the law of the refraction of light. The great jurist, Hugo Grotius, Hugo de Grot, the father of international law, was born at Delft in 1583. As a child, he attracted the notice of his country and of foreign potentates, and at the age of fifteen received a golden chain from Henry IV of France. His sympathy for the Armenians brought him into prison, but his self-sacrificing wife was successful in bringing about his escape. He fled first to France, then to Sweden, whence he weighed as Swedish ambassador to Paris. On his return toward Sweden, he was overtaken by death at Rostock in 1645. He was a many-sided man, thoroughly versed in classical lore. His literary labors were by no means confined to jurisprudence. He composed also theological, historical, and philosophical treaties, as well as poetry. His book, De Veritate Religionis Christiane, concerning the truth of the Christian religion, is regarded as the best of the later defenses of Christianity. But his greatest work, and that by which he has won undying fame, is his Three Books Concerning the Law of War and Peace, De Jurebelli et Pazis Libri Tres, 1625. This great work marked a new epoch in international relations, one might say in politics, because it sets forth for the first time the system of international law. 
it is characterized not only by a truly philosophical spirit and a humanity rarely found in those days but also by the strictest scientific treatment absolute freedom from party spirit and a dignified and judicial calmness elevated above all the influences of the time it at once claimed and received the most marked attention and even today it is by no means obsolete the life of holland in the seventeenth century civic religious and artistic was sound and vigorous and in melancholy contrast to that of the kindred race in germany during and after the thirty years war spain also the adversary of holland was in a state of rapid and constant decay as early as the beginning of the reign of philip the fourth a member of the cortes had presented a memorial to him which summarized the sad condition of the country as follows quote, many places are depopulated and forsaken the churches dilapidated the houses in ruins estates lost the fields uncultivated the inhabitants with wives and children on the highways wandering from place to place in search of work nourishing themselves with the grasses and roots of the fields others immigrate to lands where the subjects are not crushed down by taxes the well-meant attempts at reform by the count duke olivares were effectually frustrated by the many constant wars which the king believed himself compelled to undertake for the maintenance of religion and the glory of the quote unquote, illustrious house of austria herein the nation and the nobles were of the one mind with their ruler they still looked upon spain as the first country of the world wars were waged in italy the netherlands portugal catalonia hungary bohemia poland and franche comte the burdens of war were all the more intolerable in that since the expulsion of the moors industry and commerce had been half paralyzed furthermore trade with all the lands with which spain was at war that is with half of europe was forbidden for her people at the same time the wars emptied the public coffers and necessitated continual loans the revenue which in sixteen thirty four amounted to eighteen million ducats of which only seven million had to be expended to pay the interest on the national debt was now almost entirely swallowed up in paying the interest on and redeeming the national loans if olivares to raise money suddenly doubled the nominal value of the metallic currency or to make handiwork cheaper made the sale of grain compulsory at prices fixed by authority his measures only increased the evil as the land became poorer the imposts rose higher for the war swallowed incredible sums already olivares in despair at the drying up of the regular sources of revenue had appealed to the magnanimity of private persons while the minister was scarcely able to bear up longer under the burden of affairs the king's mind was occupied with amusements of all sorts festivals ballads bullfights theatrical performances the authority of the cortes like that of the monarch was only nominal for philip always signed whatever olivares laid before him one thing is certain the minister thought only of the real good of the state and neither enriched himself nor allowed those around him to enrich themselves with a firm hand he held the grandees in check and permitted them neither to plunder nor defraud the country on the other hand they were free to indulge in enjoyments of all kinds for which the king set the example sexual immorality was almost universal in spain from it resulted brawls abductions and assassinations without number 
In Madrid alone, 110 murders occurred within one week. For two decades Olivares maintained himself as uncontrolled master of Spain. Then, when his overstrained system of rule broke down, when Portugal and Catalonia rose in revolt, when France was winning victory after victory in the Netherlands and in Italy, and when state bankruptcy became inevitable, the blame for all these misfortunes was heaped on his head. The queen, Isabella of Bourbon, whose private life was not above suspicion, placed herself at the head of the enemies of Olivares, and at length, in January 1633, just a month after Richelieu's death, prevailed upon the weak and irresolute monarch to banish his favourite to his estates. The joy at Olivares's overthrow was universal. A placard was found attached to the gate of the royal palace saying, quote, Now thou wilt be Philip the Great indeed, for the Count Duke will no longer make thee little. End quote. The short-sighted multitude always believes that a change will bring a better state of affairs. It was probably fortunate for Olivares that, a year and a half later, death removed him beyond the power of his enemies. His best vindication is that matters became worse in Spain after his fall. At first the king, to the joy of his loyal subjects, declared his purpose of conducting the government himself. But as he had little success, and through the death of his queen and of the heir apparent, Balthazar Charles, was left without family life, he fell back into his former wasteful and dissolute habits. His increasing sickliness, aggravated, as in the case of most of the members of the House of Austria, by immoderate eating, decided him to give up the conduct of public affairs and entrust them to Don Luis de Aro, a well-meaning but only moderately gifted minister. Friendly and complacent to everyone, he was, above all, a man of peace, but in spite of his goodwill he had little practical ability and was little acquainted with foreign affairs. In the deplorable condition of Spain, even a great genius could scarcely have changed matters for the better. A navy was no longer maintained, for it would have become merely a spoil for her enemies. Her merchant marine, on account of the prohibition of intercourse with England, France, Venice, and Portugal, had practically ceased to exist. The incessant changes in the value of money, the wretched condition of the highways, and the exorbitant taxes destroyed whatever was left of the domestic trade of Spain. Her moral degeneration more than kept pace with her material decadence. All was corrupt, from the minister and viceroy down to the village bailiff, and from the general to the sergeant. No wonder that the unpaid soldiery renounced their service, that every man regarded the state, that made such inordinate demands as his enemy, for which he ought to do nothing voluntarily, but which he was justified in defrauding to the utmost of his ability. Literature and art alone were not affected by the general spirit of decay. One of the favorite amusements of the court was dramatic representations, in which the queen herself and the princesses took part. Indeed, the dramatic instinct was deep-rooted among the people. In the beginning of the 17th century, Lope de Vega stood on the pinnacle of his fame, but was shortly displaced by Pedro Calderón de la Barca, 1600-1681. Calderón wrote comedies, dramas, tragedies, and sacred plays, autos, all with the same richness of thought, fertility of imagination, and ease of versification. Calderón's forte does not lie in subtle delineation of individual character, 
but he knows how to let the voice of nature speak out clear and true even in its deepest most exciting and most affecting tones the spain of his time especially that of the higher orders with their sensitive feeling of honour their reckless courage their pomp of speech their love for gallant adventures and their unbounded devotion to the churches lives acts and speaks before us in the works of this poet but there was not only dramatic poetry the brothers argensola were eminently happy in their imitations of horace showing taste clearness and a feeling for pictorial beauty quevedo wrote his satirical visions and comic romances such as the history and life of the great sharper viejas love songs are not destitute of charm but they are marred by exaggerated and forced expressions and figures luis de gongora sedulously developed this far-fetched affected manner the cultivated style and thus became the founder of a formal school known as gongorists no word preserved its natural sense no sentence its natural structure no thought received natural expression all was novel inverted forced into unusual forms mixed up with foreign-like elements and embellished with monstrous metaphors thus the inauguration of the rapid decadence of spanish literature falls immediately after the period of its proudest bloom in the time of philip the fourth who himself took a lively interest in the poetry of the quote-unquote culturists the king interested himself also in painting and was a frequent visitor in the studios of the great artists who then raised spanish painting to its height their art was characterized by an ardent religious feeling full surrender of self to the divine monkish ascetism consuming zeal for the faith such are the favorite subjects of the spanish artists whose work is marked by strong coloring and skill in gradation of shades they stand upon the shoulders of the venetians whose types they modify in a way to make them national de las roelas and francisco herrera were the first to implant these tendencies in the school of seville francisco surbaran fifteen ninety two to sixteen sixty two the first to give them full expression from the same school came diego velasquez de silva fifteen ninety nine to sixteen sixty a sevillan though his exact study of the netherlanders and his long sojourn in italy enabled him to break the bonds in which his fellow artists lay and gave him a wider range the silvery airy colouring peculiar to him diffuses a charm of sentiment over his pictures landscapes genre pieces as well as religious subjects occupied his brush till his career was ultimately determined by philip the fourth appointing him his court painter after this he devoted himself to painting the portraits of persons of eminence and this work in his hands acquired a more dignified imposing and noble character than in those of the netherlanders in colouring velasquez combined the excellencies of the venetian and netherland schools he and murillo who was born two decades later constitute the most brilliant double star in the artistic firmament of spain sculpture too was transplanted to spain by the admirable berruguete in the first half of the sixteenth century and found there especially in the south a race of zealous devotees reaching down to the present day the chief names are those of montañez died sixteen forty nine an artist of the first rank and his more famous pupil alonso cano of granada sixteen o one to sixteen sixty seven who like michelangelo 
was sculptor, architect, and painter, having studied painting in Seville. Philip IV brought him, while still a young man, to court, appointing him superintendent of the royal edifices and court painter. He was especially eminent as a carver of captivatingly beautiful statuettes in painted wood. Thus literature and art gilded the waning greatness of Spain, and lent to its death throes something grand and attractive. Spanish science had long since died in the stifling embrace of the Inquisition. End of part one of Europe in the middle of the seventeenth century by Martin Philipson.